AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. This episode contains descriptions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. The morning after I confronted my grandfather, I was home alone at my parents' house, standing in the kitchen. Early summer light streamed in through the window over the sink. I could see the old tire swing, its rope now frayed and starting to rot. The phone rang. There were no words when I picked up, only his labored breathing. He'd done this before, calling the house and just breathing when he heard me pick up. Hello? I said. Hello? I was ready to hang up. But this time he spoke. I'm an old man, he said. I'm going to be dead soon. I need your forgiveness to go to heaven. Do you forgive me? I remember the phone ringing. 
I remember the light through the window and the black plastic receiver smooth in my palm. I remember the sound of his voice, wavering and gruff and old, and the way my skin pricked and my heart thudded to hear it. I remember his question. I have no memory of how I answered him. That's Alex Marzano Lesnovich. They are a memoirist, author of the Lambda Award-winning The Fact of a Body, and assistant professor at Bowdoin College. Alex's story is a braided one, each strand weaving around the other to make something stronger than its parts, a strength that comes from looking closely, even when looking is scary, especially when looking is scary. I'd call this a story that is the triumph of spirit and intellect over silence and secrets. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. I grew up in New Jersey. It was a bedroom community for New York. All around us, there were these these markers of people trying to make a new story over the one that they had grown up in, over the one they had left behind. So I remember when my parents brought home matching Cadillacs. We had this house that was kind of falling down around us but that they were forever rebuilding. They had bought it really cheaply when the family who had lived in it prior uh, had moved out, and they had moved out because the rumor had it of an attempted murder. We moved in and they set about um, trying to remake it. And interestingly, I think trying to remake it in ways that sometimes looked older. So my father, for example, had these Victorian flourishes added to the house, to the woodwork, even though they weren't part of it originally. And so it was this landscape of remaking, of reinvention, of the idea that it was possible to reinvent oneself and get away from the past. And that was a really heady and beautiful idea as a kid, right? Like you're living in some ways in a grand story. We were always living in a mythology of like the big house and the big family and the big parties. And there was real beauty to that. And then there was real complexity. Mm. I love the idea of these Victorian flourishes and the idea of remaking a house, but remaking it to look older rather than classically remaking a house to modernize it. It's almost like somehow that feels very metaphorical in terms of your story itself, because it's like, I don't know, somehow attaching pieces of history, or I'm just sort of picturing it like a Wes Anderson movie. (laughs) I mean, I gotta say, it felt very Wes Anderson. And when I look at it now, and I remember when they were redoing the hallway, for example, they had all us kids pick out things that were important to us and place them in the framework of the house. And then the woodwork was boarded back up. So it was all with this idea of we will live in, we will live through history. We will be a story of the future. There will be some family down the line that uncovers us and wonders about who we are. If there is, they may be a bit sad to discover my goofy ring that was my prized possession at that age. (laughs) Could there possibly be a more apt and beautiful metaphor than a child's goofy ring, a prized possession? buried into the framework of a house? Alex's family's home contains many secrets that are quite the opposite of childhood innocence. Many years later, 
Alex and their mother have a conversation when there's a good chance the house is going to be raised, torn down to make way for a new development. Alex says they'd like to drive the bulldozer, and their mother says, no, I get to do that. Tell me about your mother, the mother that you grew up with, not your mother today. I mean, I have so much respect for everything she pulls off. Her parents didn't want her to go to college. They didn't feel a woman had to go to college. Uh, So she would sneak out to go to college, even though she was living with them. She went to college secretly. They didn't even know until almost she graduated. She'd almost graduated once they found out. And she continued this kind of determination. I I think my, my love of words and my love of stories comes from her. She taught me to read well before I went to kindergarten, you know, well before we were learning to read. Bit of a, I think we're, we're both quite stubborn. <laughs> and so um, I apparently didn't speak to her the first day of kindergarten because I came home very upset that she had never told me that there were capital letters. She only taught me the lowercase letters and I was so upset. You, apparently I said, you never told me there were big ones. But I think that way she made it fun. You know, she made learning a real adventure for us. And um, I suspect she was quite bored at home with us a bit. She loved it. But also, when I look back now, I sort of sense a mind straining for, like, wanting to be out in the world tackling things. Because she did teach us so much and also had some fun with her power as someone who could teach us. Uh, So, for example, she taught us the word candy meant, as a matter of definition, bananas dipped in plain yogurt. And so I vividly remember the first time I went to, like, a classmate's house and the the classmate's mother said, would you like some candy? And I was like, no, not really. I don't really like candy. (laughs) And the expression on my classmate's face, you know, and then realizing, oh, but that was, that was quite a powerful moment because I realized, oh, right. Like words are what we say they are. This is all a system of meaning that we are constantly making. Um, And then when I was, I think about 12, maybe younger, she went to law school. And by that point, there were four of us kids at home and uh, she went full-time to law school during the day and brought us with her sometimes. And so I kind of grew up, you know, as a kid, the things that make impressions on you are not what would seem right-sized to an adult, but rather, you know, the things that, that stand out as like thumbtacks in your world or in your landscape or shift your understanding of the world. And for me, it was a couple of things. Being at law school with her was the first time I ever saw a woman in a suit and understood that a woman could be a professor, that a a woman could teach her, that a woman could have this position of authority. It was also the first time I encountered macaroni and cheese the way the rest of the world makes, the rest of the country makes it, and not the way my family makes it, which is a very distinctive way. (laughs) And uh, How's that? After the banana dipped in yogurt, I need to know. You know, the way we grew up with mac and cheese was just like you make it so that the pasta is like fresh off the stove and you dump it into a metal bowl. And my mom would yell, stir. And all us kids would like be positioned around the bowl. And one of us would dump in a load of shredded cheese and another one would dump in some milk. And another would, would, would dump in a little bit of, I can't believe it's not butter. And all you would do was just stir madly. And mostly it was cheese. It was like almost equal parts macaroni and cheese. So it was just like a, a melted cheese extravaganza. It was like gooier than pizza. But it definitely wasn't that like creamy mac and cheese sauce that people make. So we got to the cafeteria and I just remember being stunned 
just utterly stunned by whatever the substance was. So those two, and then sitting in one of her law school classes and having a professor talk about a hypothetical and call it that a hypothetical, which is how law is taught, which is how you know I was taught law eventually when I went to law school, where you spin out a set of alternate facts and you talk about the way precedent and case law could apply to those facts. But I remember sitting in that classroom and feeling like, you know, they just said this fancy word, but I know what that is. That's a story. A hypothetical is a story. And so it was really this space of storytelling. And she would read to us. She read to us every, every night so many stories and, you know, gave me adult books. The minute I expressed interest in something with chapters, you know, I, I think she, uh, she worked really hard to remake the world that she wanted to be in a world of ideas and a world of words that she had been very forcefully told was not to be hers when she was a child and when she was a young adult and so i think she really made the world she wanted to be in and made a, a world for herself to enter and what about your father my dad is a man of dreams he wears his dreams on his sleeve my mother wears her dreams more privately. We can talk about them. But my dad wears his dreams and his stories on his sleeve. He is a very enthusiastic man. He's always the life of the party and um, wants to be the center of attention. And he's very much a storyteller. And um, he, too, is a lawyer. And he would often tell us stories about his childhood, uh, whereas my mother never did. But he would always tell us stories about his childhood. And he was always falling in love with something new and very enthusiastic. I'm a very enthusiastic person, <laughs> and I would probably trace that back to him. So when I was a kid, you know, when he fell in love with opera, it wasn't just that he fell in love with opera. It was that suddenly he was periodically wearing a tux, and there was opera always playing through the house, and there were posters about opera and whatnot. Then when he fell in love with country music, there was Garth Brooks all the time through the house and he bought a tractor for the backyard. And all of a sudden he had big belt buckles and um, cowboy boots, even though we lived in New Jersey. Then Cole Porter. And so literally a white dinner jacket, Cole Porter playing through the house at all times. And of course the cuisine would shift. <laughs> uh, the cuisine of the house would shift. Um, so I think this like idea of reinvention and of chasing maybe multiple lives within a lifetime. We'll be right back. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent 
any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Within this family life filled with books and words and music and magic, Alex and their three siblings, the four of them, form a neat and tidy family. Everything fits together snugly, exactly right. They sit around the dining room table, the six of them, a table built for a family exactly this size. No more, no fewer. But something shimmers in the air, something not quite right. Alex can't put their finger on it. It's just a feeling. But then one day... While they and their twin brother Andy are outside playing, Alex is witness to one of those indelible moments that shifts their understanding of their family. I think in childhood we often remember those moments that shift our understanding of the world, that open up a new layer. And for me, one of these moments was the house was built in such a way that there was a window in my parents' bedroom that you could look out and the bedroom is the second floor. And you could look out that window and you would see the whole landscape of the backyard. 
and there was a tire swing back in the yard hanging from this big old tree. And we would all play on it all the time. But there was this day when my brother flung himself through that tire swing and his body went limp because he was playing. I mean, I, I was standing not far from him. I knew he was playing. That's what we were doing. He was just going limp in play. But my mother um, came running from the house, barefoot, her, her bathrobe trailing behind, you know, the, the ties of her bathrobe trailing behind her, uh, just wailing. And my dad caught her. He caught her and, and, and steadied her. And she kind of flung herself into his arms. And um, it made such an impression for so many reasons. One, uh, I had really never seen my mother cry. My mother was always very composed, very controlled, very polished. And my father was the emotional one. Uh, I think now we would say that he was suffering from a pretty profound depression at the time. But he was the one who I was used to seeing cry. I had never seen her break apart that way. And of course, there were things that I barely remembered that must have retained sort of an imprint on my memory of the fact that my brother had been very sick when we were growing up. He and I were born three months premature and we were triplets. And my sister had died when we were several months old. And it was one of those things that exists in the shadow of your mind as a child where sort of you know, but you don't know, but you know, but you don't know, but certainly no one ever, ever, ever spoke of it. Nor did they speak of how sick my brother had been as a kid. He was in three comas before we were seven. And I do, like if I look back and think about it, there are all these moments where we would be sent off to relatives or someone would appear at the house to take care of us and, and he would be off in the hospital again. They kept a bag packed for the hospital at all times. And there were just many moments when he was near death. But in that way that my family sort of approached anything difficult with, always we would just never again speak of it. We would pretend that it never happened. So it would sort of, all those incidents would kind of get, it's not that they disappeared, but they sort of disappeared in the landscape of my memory. Like they retained like this shadowy presence. And that moment when she came running, I think it's certainly looking back the first time that I can recall realizing that they were grappling with grief. But again, it was something that we never spoke about again. We never acknowledged, you know, what had just happened was weird, <laughs> but you certainly couldn't say anything about it. But I think when I look back and I try to look for the traces of what made us, right? The way that I think often with memory, you're often telling a story about what made us, what brought us here. That's one of the places I see that trace of grief showing up. I see the residue of grief showing up. Yeah, I'm so, I'm so interested in that liminal, shadowy place where the things that we know but can't allow ourselves to think live and it's shortly after the moment where your mother comes running out of the house wailing that she actually tells you this one time about the third triplet Jacqueline it seems like it's the first time that you're given a name and one of the things that really struck me is that you write I already knew you know, that there was this strange, sure feeling that someone was missing. 
And that speaks so much to the ways that your family and so many families, in an attempt to just move on or have things be fine or better, will just push something into a corner or under the rug where it inevitably does not remain. I mean, eventually it does not remain. But that that moment really struck me that way. Thank you. Yeah, I think absolutely it inevitably does not remain. And I I think about that so often. In teaching, I, I constantly tell my students to pay attention to what's emerging, to what's showing up, to what's poking through, to what's trying to materialize, trying to make itself known and bring itself into language. And I think we live in a society where that's also such a major aspect. You know, what is showing up that we don't talk about? What is showing up that we're trying to pretend isn't there? What wants to make itself known? And so much of life is negotiating what we're willing to acknowledge versus what lies beneath the surface. Yeah. I mean, the the tagline for this show is the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Yes. Well said. But there's another very different kind of massive secret also buried within the walls of the house. Alex's grandfather, their mother's father, sexually molested both them and their sister from the time they were three years old. You know, like so many families, mine had a lot of hidden abuse in it. My earliest memory of my grandfather abusing me, I think, takes place at age three. That's about what we can figure out from where I remember the objects in his house being. And it continued on until I was age eight when my parents found out about it because my sister had something, she had money that uh, they asked her where it came from. And she said, oh, my grandpa gave it to me for sitting on his lap. And they started asking questions and realized that we were all being abused by him. Uh, All the assigned female birth people in my family were being abused by him, all the kids. But at every stage, it was hidden. You know, the kids who were being abused, we didn't talk about it uh, with each other. My sister and I, we shared a room. And we certainly were in the room when the other one was being abused. And so we certainly knew about it, but we never spoke about it. At least not that I recall. I have pretty strong memories from that whole time period. And I don't recall us ever speaking of it. And when they found out about it, What they said was, you can never talk about this. And I think they believed that they were protecting us. I think they believed, you know, what they they tell me now is that they were told by a psychologist they consulted that maybe if they pretended that it hadn't happened, it would go away for us. There's so much of that kind of well-meaning but unbelievably poor psychologically damaging advice um, that parents got from medical professionals at a certain time in, you know, in history that's not really that long ago. Yeah, I I hear constantly how common that was. Um, I will say uh, the first five months my book was out in the world, I got at least three emails a day from people who had been abused. And I have never done a reading without having someone tell me their story afterwards. It's so common. It's just so incredibly common for queer people who it's sometimes thought are targeted more perhaps because they maybe perceived as different as children or what have you. 
So it's just very, very, very common and very, very common to have it be covered up. And I think that was one of the things that broke my heart most um, working on the book, but then also in the aftermath of its publication was just how alone everyone feels with their secret and yet how incredibly not alone everyone is. And that it's something that I deeply believe if we spoke about it more, the prevalence might decrease. <laughs> I deeply believe that the only way to, to stop this in society is to actually start talking about it. And so the secrecy hurts the people who've been through it, but also sort of keeps it going. That's been one of the big things I hold heavily in my heart. Alex is an adult attending a big family party when they overhear their father saying, regarding their grandfather's abuse, oh, Alex is the only one who remembers that. It's essentially a kind of gaslighting. Like, if they're the only one who remembers it, then did it really happen? When there is no doubt that it happened. In fact, Alex has a memory of their grandfather saying to them on Halloween, I'm a witch, and someday, I'm going to get you. There's so much in your story about the negation of the abuse and what it does to the memory. Part of why that scene with my father at the party was so striking was that no one had previously denied that the abuse happened. And it was a shock to hear him denying it. What was the timeline on that? How old were you when... when I was in my 20s when that happened. So it went from silence, and we're not going to talk about this, and grandfather's still going to be in our, our lives, and we're going to kind of pave it over, to then a kind of haunting. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my family didn't deny that it happened. They just denied that it should hurt that it happened. They just denied that it should have any effect, or it was very much, if this bothers you, that is your problem, your fault. And so... My father saying that at the party was such an escalation of the denial, where it was like, wait, now you're going to deny that it even happened? How? Because he had abused my sisters as well as myself, and um, also another cousin, although I didn't know that at the time. There was enough of a chorus of voices that none of us had to doubt ourselves that it had happened. And when I finally did confront him, my grandfather, when I was 18, he immediately acknowledged that he had abused me. He just denied that it was a problem. <laughs> well, and he, and he quite matter-of-factly says, uh, it happened to me too. Yes, he did say that, yeah. And I think that was, my family's style was more to say, yes, it happened, but we don't need to talk about it because it shouldn't affect you. If it affects you, it, it's essentially like this idea that to be affected by the past is a kind of weakness that one should just be able to turn away from it and not be affected. I think the belief that if we don't think about the past, it will resurge itself, it will, it will resurface, um, is one that is important to me. It's one that I grew up in. I'm, tra I'm trans, I'm not trans non-binary, and a message constantly given to me <laughs> by society is, oh my God, that's so new. How could you how could you demand to be recognized that way? How could you ask to be seen that way? That's so incredibly new. And I am someone who finds great solace in looking at history and being able to say, this is super not new. <laughs> like, this is actually 
way more true and way more real to how people have lived throughout time than any pretense of a very strict binary. And similarly, the idea that if we turn away from whatever happened in the past, it just shows up again. I think all of my work is like this argument for complexity and acknowledging complexity and living in complexity, and also sort of continuity across time, that there really isn't a way to just put a firm break on the past and like never talk about it, that our lives are continual stories. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When Alex is a law student studying at Harvard, during a summer internship at a law firm, they first come across the case of a man named Ricky Langley, 
a murderer and pedophile who is facing the death penalty for killing a six-year-old boy named Jeremy Gilroy. Though Alex never works on Ricky's case, they become consumed by it because when they watch the video and read the reports, they are shocked to realize that they, who are firmly opposed to capital punishment, want Ricky dead. What's this about? Alex's journey to understand Ricky's history is part of the braid I mentioned earlier. Buried in Ricky's history are questions and answers to Alex's own. So was your decision to go to law school born at your mother's feet when you were 12 years old, sitting and and watching her in law school? I wrote my application essay for Harvard Law saying I didn't want to be a lawyer. And uh, kudos to them for letting me in despite that fact. (laughs) Because what I wanted to do was understand, I wrote it about wanting to understand why the death penalty was constitutional. Because it felt to me, you know, I'd read everything that I could at that age and without more training, I had read what I could find. And to me, it seemed patently unconstitutional. And I was also didn't quite understand why sex offender registration was constitutional. It seems like essentially a, a second punishment, given that shaming is one of the oldest punishments. And that might appear to be sort of an odd thing for me to care about, given that I was abused. And one would think perhaps that I would just, of course, be in favor of sex offender registration and whatnot. But I think I was pretty acutely aware that so much of sexual abuse happens within families and that offender registries tend to leave out family-driven abuse. So it's more like an illusion of safety than an actual public mechanism for safety. And I was really curious why that was okay, why that was seen as okay. And so I went to law school for those reasons, but promptly also started taking writing classes at night. So I would go to law school during the day, and I was I was still closeted then as gay. So I'd go to law school during the day, and uh, one evening a week I would go to fiction classes, and one evening a week I would go to a queer uh, meetup that was happening in Boston at the time. And both of those other lives were totally secret. No one I knew at law school knew about them. What was that like during that time? I mean, what did that feel like that you were essentially dividing your life into pieces on a pie chart and and keeping secrets? That was the only way I knew, right? I'd, I'd grown up in secrets. I'd kept secrets. I'd, I, I've known I was trans since I was eight. I have a very acute memory of when I realized that. And I kept that secret hard. Back in law school, it actually felt very natural because it was what I was used to. I'll take it a step further. I was really politically liberal, was and am really politically liberal. And yet my first year, I joined all the conservative organizations because I was like, I don't understand any of this. And so let me try to learn. So I was so closeted. I was just very, very, very closeted. I had this daytime life that was had nothing to do with who I really was. And then I would have this evening life That was where my heart laid and where I was trying on the idea of living as myself. So at what point when you're in law school do you come across the case of of Ricky Langley? Uh, My first summer of law school, I took an internship helping to defend men accused of murder, mostly men, all the clients were men. And 
I came across the case on the third day of that internship when I was shown his confession videotape. In the interview for the job, for the internship, they had asked me, well, could you help defend a pedophile? And I remember I was sitting in my law school dorm room and I, you know, that quality of when the air changes, when it's one of those moments in your life where things collide and the, the quality of the air shifted. And I remember saying, yes, I can. And I truly believed, you know, and I was a pretty intense person in my 20s. And I would say I truly believed that if I really opposed the death penalty, I had to be able to do this, that this was the ultimate test because of my past. It would, it would sort of prove that I was so over my past that I could remain committed to my ideals. And so that was the first inkling. But then I got to the internship and they showed us his confession videotape and I watched the video and he described doing something to children that my grandfather had done to me, like a very specific thing. And my body just totally launched me back into the past. That was kind of the moment where I realized that what I had believed about how we could just turn away from the past, how we could just deny it, was in fact not going to be true. And that I was going to have to find a different way through this story. My body just totally launched me back into the past. Anyone who has experienced trauma knows this feeling, expressed so beautifully by a previous guest on this podcast, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, author of the seminal book, The Body Keeps the Score. Trauma lives in the body. And we now use the word trigger. When we're triggered by something that stirs up that trauma, it's like a game of shoots and ladders. We're taken right back there. So you become deeply involved in Ricky's story and in the story of Jeremy Gilroy, the six-year-old boy that he that he killed. Was that clear to you that the stories become so intricately braided together psychologically, your story and Ricky's story and Jeremy's story and the other people who are connected to them? You know, there are some really breathtaking moments where it all feels like it's kind of in concert somehow, that it's the way that you are coming to understand everything that you need to know. I really appreciate your word choice there, because um, you said in concert, and I know you mean like together, but at the same time, that's sort of a musical metaphor. No, I actually meant, I meant it as a musical metaphor. Actually. Okay, fantastic. In terms of when I sort of got involved in his case, I think it's really important to note that I did not work on his case at all and was not part of it at all while I was doing the internship. Had I been involved in it, I never could have written the book. So what happened was that I was shown that video, not because I was going to be working on his case. The second trial had concluded by that point. And so I didn't have any interaction with his case for the rest of that summer until meeting him at the end of the summer, which is a a moment that's at the end of the book. And this very curious thing happened in those years where I actually couldn't remember Ricky Wayne's name for many years. I could not remember it. In those years, it was so intense. 
that if I looked up the case online, I could read all about it and I would walk away or I would put a printout or a paper down and I would not be able just a moment later to tell you what the murderer's name was. I knew everything else about the case. All the details are in my mind, but I couldn't remember his name. A big part of why Alex can't remember Ricky's name is like that staticky reaction to trauma. As they read through 8,000 pages of court records, they're haunted by the gruesome details of the case. A six-year-old boy, murdered and stuck in a closet, wrapped in a blue blanket where he remained for days. A semen stain on his shirt. A single pubic hair on his lip. A sock stuffed into his mouth. A videotaped confession. Over the course of the years, Alex studies Ricky's history, moving back and forth in time in order to understand, if not pinpoint, where the story begins, both theirs and Ricky Langley's. It's understanding thereafter. Not forgiveness. There is no place for the simple platitude of forgiveness. As they write... From the transcripts and by visiting the places in Louisiana where events in the man's life took place, I have imagined his mother, his sisters, the little boy's mother, all the characters from the past. And I have driven the long, lonely road from New Orleans to the Louisiana State Penitentiary called Angola. I have sat across from this man, the murderer, in a visiting booth, and I've looked into the same eyes that are on this tape. This tape brought me to re-examine everything I believed, not only about the law, but about my family and my past. In both your family story and your story, and then Ricky Langley's story, there is this question of how far do we have to trace back? Where do we begin telling a story if we're really going to be telling it from its beginnings, if that's even possible. One of the things I'm really interested in is how much where you start a story shapes what its meaning is. And that comes up in my family, right? Like, I think you you interpret my family's actions and their turning away from the abuse differently if I begin the story shortly before the abuse. Then sometimes it might be possible to judge my parents quite harshly for that. But if you tell a larger story about why they would feel so compelled to turn away from the past, and you start understanding that for them it was an extraordinary amount of grief and fear over my brother's illnesses and the unknown nature of the future and the loss of my sister, I think it's possible to have more empathy for why it would be so important to them to rewrite the story of the past and pretend the past hadn't, the harms of the past and the hurts of the past hadn't happened. And similarly, in the Langley case, I think we understand Ricky Langley differently depending on where we start his story. And that that power of the storyteller to shape the story and what goes in and what gets left out is also, of course, a big thing in the law. There's so much that ultimately is threaded through um, your story that has to do with the question of forgiveness the question of forgiveness in your family, with your parents, you with your grandfather, the question of this sort of extraordinary forgiveness that happens in 
in Ricky Langley's case where Jeremy's mother, the, the mother of the boy that he murdered, is the one who appeals to the court to spare him the death penalty. Talk to me a little bit about what you learned about that there can be actions that may seem like on the surface that, that they would connote forgiveness, but that in fact don't require forgiveness. Yeah, I think forgiveness is such a, oh, it's such a tricky idea. I, I really dislike the way we use it culturally. I think we use it to simplify. I think we use it to flatten. I think we often use it to erase. We often use it to shift the burden to the person who's been harmed and to say, oh, well, that person should just forgive. And I think it's really important that we note that Lorelai did not forgive, that, that, that her action, she feels, is not a matter of forgiveness, that her action really is about not wanting him to die, but that that is not the same thing. And that is a more complicated position than we have cultural language for. And yet, I personally believe probably a more honest position than we have cultural language for. And one that allows for recognition of the humanity of the person who did the harm without erasing the harm done to the person who was hurt. And we are not very good at duality in this society, at holding dualities. And that is one that I think is really important. I hope someday we as a society learn a better relationship to the harms of the past. One that makes more space for reckoning and more space for accountability and more space for complexity and stops rushing to a simplified idea of forgiveness that could have quite a lot of power and could be quite beautiful and could make space for everyone's humanity and reconciliation and, and whatnot is instead now used as a weapon or a band-aid. And that is kind of why I am so resistant to engaging with it. Let's close with a few more words from Alex. Here, they stand at the cemetery where their grandparents are buried. My grandmother is buried next to a secret. My grandfather died with the fact of who he was. I can't say that I forgive them. Only that forgiveness is too simple a word. They helped make me. They did such harm. I have to go now. My voice sounds strange, tremulous in the quiet. I have always found the dead in the stories they leave behind, not in the stone-cold fact of the grave. But I never got to say goodbye while my grandparents were alive because every goodbye I ever said was really just words that stood in place of all I couldn't say. I'm going to go finish telling this story. There. Now they know. I am telling this story. I mean those words to be my last to them. That where there was silence, there will be speech. That where there were secrets, I will make way for the complicated truth. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartMedia. Dylan Fagan and Bethann Macaluso are the executive producers. Andrew Howard is our audio editor. 
If you have a secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming bonus episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer, Facebook at facebook.com slash family secrets pod, and Twitter at fam secrets pod. And if you want to know about my family secret that inspired this podcast, check out my New York Times bestselling memoir, Inheritance. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.